Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So the very first verse we read today, verse 8 says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. A king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember we looked at the story about Joseph. It had an amazing bit of twists and turns and ups and downs, but we stayed with it until he was able to rise through the ranks of power in Egypt until he became the most powerful person in Egypt, save the Pharaoh. He had great power, and he had this ability to see what was happening in the future, and he had warned them about a famine and helped them prepare for it. And then during the story, you may remember his brothers who were living further north had not seen that coming, had not prepared for it, and came to see him, bowed down before him, and asked for help. He was willing to save them, even though they had done dastardly things to him. And he provided them food. He said, go get our father and all the rest of the family and bring them here. I will provide land for you. I will protect you. And I'll provide food for you and everyone else. And Joseph took care of all of his relatives. And Egypt prospered during that whole time. But Genesis ends in chapter 50 with the death of Joseph. And then Exodus begins, and it remembers Joseph and all of his brothers. But then it tells us that they all have died. Exodus starts by recalling Joseph and that whole story, but then saying they all have died. Not only Joseph and all his brothers, but the whole generation. 
And that sets the stage for what we began to read this morning is now there's someone in charge who does not know Joseph and has no appreciation of what he did for the Egyptians and has no affection for him or for any of his relatives or any of his descendants. In fact, he looks at the Israelites and sees them as a threat. This new king equates difference with threat. You notice he points out that they are a different ethnic group. These Israelites are over here, and he begins to distinguish between the Egyptians and the Israelites as separate groups. He doesn't tell you really why that he's afraid of them or sees them as a threat. He makes no particular claim against them except for that they are different and now they're becoming numerous and that bothers him see if you can hear it in verse verses 9 and 10 he said to his people look the israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we come let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land he gives no real evidence for why they should be suspicious or why they should see them as a threat he just makes these accusations about what might happen and begins to move his people away from their neighbors in this way Perhaps his real reason for wanting to generate this fear and to legitimate his policies is because he needs them as slave labor. Perhaps his real motive is that he needs to use the Israelite people for his purposes. I think verse 11 helps confirm that. The narrator says, therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramses, for Pharaoh. The Pharaoh has a building program, and he needs some laborers. He wants to enrich himself. He wants to build more power and wealth for himself. So he begins to use his power over the Israelites to enslave them. He begins to generate this idea that they are so different that the Egyptians, the power group, should see them as a threat. It helps him legitimate this policy of deciding that it would be okay to use them as forced laborers or slave labor. As he moves into the program, it's not working out the way he imagines. And the text tells us that he becomes more and more ruthless until finally he's ready to take the step of killing them. Verse 15 and 16 tell us about that part. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a boy, kill him. This king is ready to go as far as he wants in terms of degrading human life in using other people 
and abusing his power. This is an apt description of the evolution or the escalation of hate where he begins to systematically dehumanize this whole group of Hebrew people. You notice the steps that he takes. First, he begins to point out they are different than we are and begins to create this separation. And then he begins to suggest that they are a threat or of less value because of this difference that he sees. And then he begins to instigate discriminatory policies against them to control them and use them for his own purposes. Finally, he's willing to take the step of using violence to back up his policy to control this people that he has said are somehow less valuable than his group. And at last, he takes this fifth and final step. He's ready to commit violence, not only just to hurt them, but to kill them. He's ready to commit murder. He's ready to kill innocent children to feed his own desire for power and wealth. If we take the time to think about this, this Bible story becomes a horrific scenario of the abuse of power and a reign of terror directed at a subgroup of people within a country. Now the midwives... Enter the story in verse 15, and by verse 17, you know they are the heroines of the story. They are going to be the ones that take a stand. The king has said to them, I want you to murder any of these male children. If you are there and you see it, you kill them. But the narrator tells us that the midwives feared God. And decided not to do that. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the boys live. They become a force for good. In the face of this escalation of hate. They become a force of resistance. A force of life and love. For these innocent victims of this power hungry king. The midwives become an example of the use of power for the good of the people. When the leader has decided to begin to make decisions for his own good and to the detriment of the people, these midwives, with the little personal power they have, make a choice to stand up against that. They make a choice that they're going to choose life and goodness and love despite what the king is telling them to do. And remember, this is a king that's already made it clear he doesn't mind killing people. That is not a bother to him. And yet they stand up nonetheless. Last week, I began to tell you about young Francis of Assisi and how he was raised in a privileged and wealthy family of his time. But as a young man, he began to feel a call to do something different. And eventually he gives up his life of luxury, walks away from the wealth of his family, 
because he feels God calling him to rebuild his church, both figuratively and literally. There is a crumbling church structure near his home, and he begins to manually rebuild the church, as well as doing that through his life of love and humble service to people around him. He's one, they say, who taught, be the change that you desire to see in the world. Not only talk about it, but become the change, be the change that you want to see in the world. And by all accounts, St. Francis embodied that in his life for the rest of his years. But he also embodied it in this prayer, or at least this prayer that is attributed to him. Remember, it starts like this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And then the next line, where there is hatred, let me sow love. Sow as in plant love or spread love, an agricultural term about spreading seeds that can grow and flourish. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. You can hear how this prayer embodies the idea of Francis' life of becoming or being the change that you believe God wants to see in the world. Do you know the name Gordon Cosby? Gordon Cosby. He died in 2013 at the age of 95. He had lived a long life, but also an interesting life. And much of what he did in his life is very similar to what St. Francis is talking about in this prayer. There's a story about him that when he was only 16 years old, a young white boy walking with his brother in a town that was segregated in the African-American part of the city. They walked past a church, and there were some African-Americans standing there talking they engaged in conversation with them. As they are talking to them, they find out that they do not have a pastor. And young Gordon says, how about I be your pastor? <laughs> well, as you can imagine, in 1930s America, a young white boy saying he should be the pastor of an African-American church, they weren't so sure that was a great idea. They said, we're not sure about that. He said, I'll tell you what, do you have someone to preach next week? And they said, well, no. He said, how about I come back, I'll preach a sermon, and then you can decide if I should be your pastor or not. They talked amongst themselves, and they finally said, all right, we'll give you a try. Gordon came back the next week and preached the sermon and the church decided that he could be their pastor. And he stayed with them as their pastor for the next several years through high school and college, only ending that part of his ministry because it was time for him to go to seminary. And he had to move further away where he could no longer pastor them. He went on to seminary and finished his degree. By that time, World War II was upon us. He enlisted to be a chaplain. He ended up being a part of the invasion force at Normandy on D-Day. He spent the whole day pulling wounded soldiers to safety, ministering to those who were dying. And in fact, his best friend was also part of that force. 
And he had to watch him die that day. He continued to serve. Later he was awarded the Silver Star for bravery and action that day. But as he continued to work with young soldiers, he began to become so very clear to him that their Christian faith, most of them were Christians, their Christian faith had not really equipped them to deal with this kind of life and death experiences that they were having and the consequences of all that was going on around them. So he determined and committed to himself that if he survived the war, when he got back to the United States, he was going to start a church that was focused on helping people grow deeper faith and faith that would serve him and serve them through the vicissitudes of their living. He did survive the war. And in 1946, came back to the United States and founded the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. It was an interracial church from the very beginning. This is 1940s America. That was not heard of. Heck, it's hardly heard of today. But Gordon Cosby set out to do just that and was able to accomplish it. He also believed, of course, in putting your faith in action, so he made it part of the membership requirement that anybody and everyone who was going to join had to make a commitment to serve regularly, either the homeless or someone who was sick or dying or in need. Everybody had to serve as a part of their faith commitment at the Church of the Savior. And sure enough, faith did grow, and ministry multiplied throughout the city. They said at his death, there were still over 40 mission and service organizations in Washington, D.C., that had come out of the people at the Church of the Savior. Faith in action. Faith that makes a difference in how we live and serve. Or as the prayer says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Certainly, Gordon Cosby's ministry is an example of sowing love in the face of hatred. And last week, we talked about Joseph, and certainly his story was one where there could have been such great conflict and carnage, but because he yielded himself to God, it became a situation of peace and mercy and grace and forgiveness and abundance because Joseph was willing to make himself available for God to use as an instrument of peace. And then today we have the midwives who decide to take a stand, who risk their own lives so that they might sow seeds of love in the face of hatred. Can you see these two midwives, Shifra and Puah, as instruments of love? Can you imagine if someone who has all the power in your place tells you to do something 
and you decide to do just the opposite, and you know that the sentence have found out it's going to be death, what kind of faith, what kind of courage that these women show in the face of such terrible circumstances during this reign of terror where they could have just stood aside or just done what the king said and not been in any trouble, but rather they yielded themselves to God and made a witness for life and love. I think they are instruments in Instruments of love in the hands of God. Last week, I told you we were going to be talking in concert with our lectionary scripture lessons about this prayer of peace that's attributed to St. Francis. I had copies prepared for you and ready for you as you left, but I have to apologize to you. I underestimated you. We ran out of copies. By the time lots of people got there, they were, I made hundreds of copies. They were all gone. Now, that's a pretty good problem to have, to have more people who want to spread peace and love from Boston Avenue. That's a kind of problem a preacher likes. But so we made some more copies. And then after the 8.30 service this morning, people said, I can't find the copies. Where are they? We had run out again. So we made some more during Sunday school hour. I think they're still out on the counters. If you want one, hurry. <laughs> they're going fast. I simply ask that you take a copy and read it every day for the next 40 days. So if you started with me last week, we have 33 to go. But I also suggested besides reading it, that you might consider memorizing it. We'll be working on a phrase at a time so you could memorize a line a week. The last few weeks, you have to memorize a little bit more, but you would know the first half by then. You could do that. Or maybe, I said, all of us should be thinking about in our prayer time every day, how can we apply this? Maybe we could be paying special attention to how God might be wanting us to be an instrument of peace in our life and in our circumstances. Or today, maybe... a. a applying to see how God might want us to sow some seeds of love in the face of hate somewhere in our lives. I began to imagine what God might do in our midst if we were all willing to make ourselves available to become an instrument in God's hands. What might God do if all of us were willing to be a Joseph or like the midwives, and be an instrument and make ourselves available to do what God wants us to do on behalf of peace and love. I think God might do some unbelievable things in our midst. I think my, God might use us in ways that would even surprise us, but could truly make a difference in the world. Before we finish today, I want to Talk about Gordon Cosby again. Since he was a preacher, he left some of his writings and some of his sermons that we still have. I want to read you a few lines from one of those works. He writes, I think one of the great failures of ministers like myself is that we have exhorted people to love. And we have deplored the lack of love in the world, yet we have not become love. 
Suppose I really hear Jesus say, Gordon, do you love me? How will I stop answering in generalities? What will be my specific practices that will bring inner change? Has love become my primary work, my central activity, my core being? I think Jesus is saying, if you aspire to love one another as I have loved you, then see one another as I have seen you. I see you as sacred. You are precious beyond any measure of preciousness, except that I see you this way. See every person you meet as I see you. Learn to experience yourself and others with reverence. There is more in each of us that is beyond what we can grasp. Will I dare to see it in the person who is telling me off? In the one who is trying to get closer than is comfortable? In those who are pressuring me? Will I dare to enjoy the presence of the sacred even in those who annoy me? He finishes with this. To love is not to try to solve anything about a person. Not to try to fix a person. It is not to do so much as to be. Just be open to God's sacred creation. Just love. Amen.